KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is a Delaware County wrongful conviction case that's gotten national spotlight after the sole co-defendant witness recanted. He gave me a 73-page sworn statement. The family's request to reopen the case fell on deaf ears until now. Then after years of living on the brink of closure, Cheney University gets a boost. Transformation is occurring, but we can't stop now. President Aaron Walton discusses what some are calling the historically black college turnaround of the decade. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is a case of alleged wrongful conviction. Lee Roy Evans was convicted of the 1980 Chester murder of Emily Leo, known as the Avon Lady. His conviction rested solely on the testimony of a 16-year-old co-defendant named Anthony Jones. Jones has since recanted that testimony, but Evans' lawyer's request for the case to be reopened and DNA tested has fallen on deaf ears until Jack Stolsteimer ran for DA in Delaware County and won. There are significant holes in this case. If significant evidence has, has arisen to question the integrity of a prior conviction, we're, we're duty-bound, in my view, to review that. When I do take office, we will be reviewing this case and making sure that justice is done. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Michael Malloy. He is the defense attorney representing Mr. Leroy Evans. We also have Alice Evans, Leroy's mother, who has been by his side for this entire 40-year ordeal. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So, Mike, I, I just want to start with you. Please explain to people how in the world Leroy Evans ended up behind bars for 40 years. Well, 1980, there was a, a murder which became famous in Delaware County called the Avon Lady uh, murder case. She was a, a woman in the neighborhood who sold Avon goods. And uh, she was brutally murdered. And the man that was first arrested, or the boy, was Anthony Jones. He was 16 at the time. And they arrested him and also imposed a death penalty, indicating that, told him that if he, if he was found guilty, they were going to ask for the death penalty. The long and short of it is, he then implicated what he said was the second person, Leroy. Anthony Jones was 16 at the time, still in high school. Leroy was out of the Navy, married, uh, and 23 years of age. Nonetheless, that was a sole testimony against him back in 1981 when the case went to trial. He was convicted. He's been in jail 39 years, going on 40 years. Your son, uh, Miss Alice Evans, has maintained his innocence from day one. Yes. And what has it been like for the family? Oh, it's been really terrible. But thank God for, for God. He has been with us and helped us out, holding on. It was really terrible for him going in for a crime that he did not commit and pulling 40 years in jail for a crime that he did not commit. If when we call him and talk to him, he would always try to encourage me, and I would try to encourage him. And he always tell me, Mom, don't worry, I'm holding on. 
that God is with me. Mike, you you got in this case. What was the evidence or the lack of evidence that got you saying, you know what, this is an egregious uh, wrong? Well, I got into the case maybe about three and a half or four years or so on a relatively simple request, asked the court for a DNA analysis. But when I read the trial, for whatever reason I read the trial, the crime scene is is described as a very bloody crime scene. Mr. Jones said that Leroy was there and he put a rope around Mrs. Leo's neck, pulled her to the ground, and then beat her with an iron and opened up basically holes in her head with the iron, which bled out onto the kitchen floor. But when I read the trial, I keep waiting for somebody to testify about the blood. They keep saying it's a bloody crime scene, but there's no blood at the crime scene. There's not a drop of blood at the crime scene. And where was the crime scene? The crime scene was in Mr. Jones's kitchen. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, small row home, there should be blood everywhere. There should be blood certainly in the kitchen. They walked around the living room, dining room, which is carpet. There should be blood everywhere. And I couldn't really figure out why there's no blood there. And then police were on the scene after they chased Mr. Jones, who was alone at the time. They were on the scene roughly in about 20 to 30 minutes. So not only is there no blood, there's no iron in evidence. There's no photo of an iron. So that just didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't figure out where is the blood. That was my big question. When they asked Mr. Evans, you know, about his placement, how, how did he get pulled into this just so randomly? Leroy was the person in the neighborhood who, quite frankly, would do favors. In fact, on that particular day, Mr. Jones's mother had taken another son to the hospital. That's why Mr. Jones knew he was going to be home alone. When the event occurred and they were arresting Mr. Jones, somebody asked Leroy to go get his mother. He did that. When he came back, the mother's, the mother's boyfriend asked him to go into the house, him being Leroy, and because Leroy had a bag of marijuana in the house and they were concerned that Section 8 housing, if the police go in, they will, if they find the marijuana, they may be kicked out of the housing. He went into the house, mm-hmm. took the bag. Inside the bag were, were in fact, Jones was closed. No other evidence, no evidence of, of, of Mrs. Leo, Leo there. And then he did destroy that. And he admitted that when they, can't, when they confronted him. That's what I did. And so other than that, he had no idea what had happened in that house. So that's what pulled him in. And then when I finally interviewed Mr. Jones, he said, I just took that story and ran with it. They said, you know, if you tell us uh, who the second person is and if you tell us what we want to hear, we'll eliminate the death penalty. Yeah. And so that caused me to eventually reach out to Mr. Jones, who's also still incarcerated. He called me unexpectedly, and, and I really had two simple questions for him was, how come there's no blood in the house? And he said to me, well, because the murder didn't happen in the house. And then the other question was, well, did Leroy have anything to do with it? He says, yeah, he didn't know it happened at all. Yeah. My third question was, could I come and take a statement from you? Which I did, and he gave me a 73-page sworn statement, uh, and I recorded it. And it reveals so much more evidence. And Miss Evans, when you hear that the the main evidence, the sole uh, witness um, that pointed the finger at your son has recanted and given sworn statement that your son was not involved, how does that make you feel? I felt real good about it because I know he never, never hurt anybody. He would always try to help somebody. And he told us, he told the family that he did not know anything about it because we kept questioning him. And he said the Lord let him know that he was innocent. He said because he could go to bed and sleep at night and dream just like he was at home. This has had a devastating impact, of course, on your family. Oh, yes. And even as now, we feel uh, better about it because Mr. Malloy, he came in and and he is a real, real good lawyer. The whole family loves him. 
Yeah. Because he does everything. My children, they be picking at him to call him uncle. So you you become a member of the Evans family, uh, Mike. And there seems to be a shifting of the tide for Leroy, your, the, the Evans family. And what has sort of shifted it in the past year or so? Well, I, I think a lot of things shifted it. I mean, uh, a lot of it is, uh, A, we, we, consented, we persevered. We kept on pushing. Uh, we had some hearings uh, in the courtroom. But we had our, I guess, the support within the community was growing. Uh, even at the very beginning, the current mayor of Chester, where the crime occurred, and the current police, police, when I showed them the evidence, they then wrote a letter to the then district attorney, who's no longer the district attorney, saying it troubled them. And would, would she open up the investigation? And she didn't. And, and But we continued to persevere, and, and the voice got louder and louder from the outside as it did from the inside. All those items that we just talked about, the, the evidence was just not making sense. One thing I will tell you, when I took the statement from Mr. Jones, I returned to the prison and told Leroy. And he broke down and cried, and I thought he was, thought he was getting out. And he said, no, he cried, he said, because he didn't want to die without knowing what really happened in that house. Mm. That's how little he knew about the house. Our message began to, to really kind of like get louder. And then what's happened now is that the current or the, the uh, district attorney-elect, Jack Stolzheimer, he and other former district attorneys had reached out to me, and they were troubled by the case. They just thought his ex-prosecutors... There's questions here that don't, don't seem to have answers. And so when Mr. Stolzheimer then ran for the district attorney's office, uh, he just agreed that he would open the investigation. And that's all we've ever asked for because we know once it's open, the truth will reveal that Lieber had nothing to do with this. What did Mr. Jones say happened? Mr. Jones ha- said was that he stayed home because he knew his mother was taken, uh, another son. The hospital. hospital. Mm-hmm. And he called the woman because he had seen the woman, the Avon lady, at his girlfriend's mother's house. And back then there were no credit cards, and so she had cash. He was just looking to get some cash. He uses a false name and false telephone number, and then he called her to the house. I think she got nervous, realizing what's the 16-year-old boy doing home, etc. And he basically just cold-cocked her, knocked her out, and she hit the floor. The coroner would say that that is the fatal blow, but she begins to stir. So then he goes to the backyard of his house, snaps off a piece of the clothesline, and comes back and strangles her. He thinks she's dead. So there's no blood at this point in time in the house. He then drags her body into a trash can, drags the trash can up to an empty lot up the street. And at that point, he's just dumping the body, realizing nobody's going to know what happened at all. And then she woke up again. And she says to him, I know you. He then starts taking bricks and, uh, and stones that are on the empty lot and beats her with them. And that's where all the bruising around the face comes. Runs back to the house. Hides the evidence, which is all found later in his house. And then he returns to the scene. The person who had seen him with the trash can recognizes him. They chase him back to his house where he's eventually arrested. Can you even listen to what he's saying about what really happened? Yes. It was just devastating, to tell you the truth. Hearing things about him like that and we knowing that it wasn't true, that he had anything to do with it. It just really did something to me. He has held on for 40 years that he's been in prison. He said, you know, he said, I wish I was there. Miss Miss Emily Leo will be living today. Yeah. He said, because he would not have let Anthony do that. Mm-hmm. But he said he, he's sorry that he wasn't there because the woman died. And he wanted her to live when he knew she was in the hospital. And he told me he prayed that she would live where she could really tell the truth. And so now um, there's a possible chance with the election of this new DA that at the very least the DA, the DNA will be tested. Yes, the district attorney uh, elect has indicated he's going to have that tested. We fully expect it to come back 
negative for Leroy on the rope. And then after that, I think if it comes back the way you expect it to come back, the investigation will continue to look at the evidence and to see that, in fact, Mr. Jones's statement matches the evidence. We just asked to open the investigation. But however it goes, it goes. But we're pretty confident it's going to exonerate Leroy. You know, Philadelphia is unique now that they have a conviction integrity unit, which is a, a group of lawyers that literally looks at cases to determine whether or not uh, there were issues such that maybe there was a wrongful uh, result. Uh, Delaware County doesn't have that. That's correct. Uh, Philadelphia is the only county that has that. And, and, and really, in speaking to Mr. Stolzheimer, uh, you know, he felt that th- that is exactly the problem maybe that's going on in Delaware County. That, that conviction unit is, is so unique in that it really is isolated. It does not get influenced by other district attorneys in that office. So other, maybe even the person who prosecuted the case does not come in contact with that conviction unit because they're independent and they're going to look at it independently. And I think that's what he's going to try to lean to do in this particular case. Pick certain investigators that he'll separate and say, now you go independent of even himself and you look at this case and come back to me. And again, we're confident that that'll happen. But that's really troubling, not just for Mr. Evans, but troubling throughout all these people who are convicted. You know, they so, you know, they estimate roughly five to eight percent of people are wrongfully, wrongfully convicted. Well, you know, Delaware County and our surrounding counties, there are large population growths now. They're not like they used to be. Uh, and uh, it's really an issue of of justice. Uh, if you're going to uh, be a prosecutor, you know, you should be concerned certainly for uh, the justice for the victims, but also that people who are convicted are convicted correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And so as we wrap this up, I just want to say, like, what are the next steps, I guess, are to uh, kind of wait until this election is, is you know, the, the new DA is sworn in and then it's all hands on deck after that. We're holding our breath. And, and well, I hold my breath. And that was praise for both of us. Now it really, it really feels a lot, a lot better because we still have that hope that uh, that he will soon be home. And with that, I want to say thank you so much to Michael Malloy and to Alice Evans for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, once on the brink of closure, the nation's first and oldest historically black college gets good news. We're not going to rest on our laurels. Cheney University's president talks about the HBCU turnaround of the decade. We'll be right back. If you like what you hear, be sure to stick around, subscribe to the podcast, and check out some of our past episodes. We talk with newsmakers like Youssef Salam from the Central Park Five, Lonnie Bunch, Secretary of the Smithsonian, and so many others. We've debated issues like maternal mortality and the Byron Allen $20 billion lawsuit against Comcast. It's currently at the U.S. Supreme Court. If you don't know what it's all about, check out the episode. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is Cheney University. The 182-year-old historically black college has a bright future. Years of financial struggle threaten its closure. Then on Monday, the Middle States Commission on Higher Ed reaffirmed Cheney's accreditation. The decision came just months after the school announced that it had not only balanced its budget, but had its first surplus in eight years. The news means that Cheney can keep accepting federal student aid funding and focus on growth. President Aaron Walton led this historic turnaround and he's here with us 
Welcome to Flashpoint. It's official. Cheney's accreditation has been reaffirmed. And I'm, I couldn't be happier. Culmination of a lot of work by a lot of people. This marks a major milestone in the university's recent history. Could you explain the significance of this decision? It actually uh, clears the way for our continued transformation of the university. When we came on in 2017, there were a number of goals that we had to achieve based on the task force that had put together to come up with a new business model for Cheney. And I happened to co-chair that, that task force along with a number of other individuals. And we have been working toward the objectives of the task force over the last two years, which happened to parallel some of the outstanding issues that had to do with middle states. So we've been working on issues that had to do with middle states while at the same time trying to implement a new business model. So with the cloud of accreditation not hanging over our heads right now, it will allow us to continue to focus on the transformation. Yeah, this is a major turnaround because Cheney's main issue was financial. That's correct. It, it was it was a major issue. Uh, in fact, Cheney hadn't balanced its budget since 2011. So this was the first time we had a balanced budget this past year since 2011. And balancing the budget, it wasn't as much as the fact that we had a surplus of $2.1 million. And... Um, What it lets us know is that the cost-cutting measures that we took over the first two years in terms of getting Cheney to the point where it could live within its means is beginning to pay off. And we're going to make sure that as we move forward, we stay within our means, you know, and make sure that we're financially stable and not get back in the position that Cheney found itself in for a number of years. Yeah, because Cheney had owed like $30 million, but there had been an agreement that if Cheney balanced the budget over the $10 million a year would be forgiven. Is it all forgiven now? Well, it's not forgiven. That's where the, the governor, who's been a, a great partner to this whole process, what he has done is he is working with Cheney along with the, uh, with the whole system to make the schools whole that uh, would have had to write off that money that Cheney was going to have forgiven. It actually helps the other schools just as well as it's helping Cheney right now because if we had just gone into straight forgiveness, there would have been no exchange of money. So seeing that uh, the other schools are in need as well, the governor is working to make sure that those other schools, along with the state system, actually itself, gets money that had been lent to Cheney over a number of years. So basically, Cheney doesn't have to pay it back, but the governor is making sure that any entities that would have suffered because of that are going to be made whole. That's that you got it right on the front of money. This, but this is a big deal. I saw the the letter went out to students, faculty, and staff. What has been the reaction to oh, this the, news? The reaction from the faculty is static. This is their livelihood. But from the uh, students, they're very pleased because it's been a cloud over everyone's head for a period of time. And it's always an issue until, you know, it's no longer an issue. So I think that they can rest a little bit more comfortably knowing that we are maintaining the integrity of the academic process so that they can get their educations graduate and become purposeful, useful citizens. Looking forward, I know that Cheney had asserted a 30-plus percent increase in enrollment, and yeah. things are looking up. This past year, we experienced that because, you know, in the, in the year before, we had shrunk to grow. You know, we had a number of students that had been admitted to Cheney that weren't academically prepared. We weren't prepared to remediate the number of students that we just brought in in kind of an open enrollment process. So a lot of the students either went to community college or weren't able to continue. 
So we have now revised and we're living by the standards of admission that were always in place and making sure that as we bring students in now, they're more academically prepared for the rigors of a four-year institution. It's very important we got back to that and it's improving not only the quality of students, but it's improving the number of students because they're our best ambassadors and they happen to be very happy with what's going on at Cheney. So our projections for next year are around 800 and for the following year, about 1,000. So we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. People are saying thank you to you. They said that your leadership has been amazing, that they also said Governor Tom Wolf, but that also has been a village because you got people in the legislature who helped with that $4 million almost grant. Yeah. It's been everybody. You know, this is, you know, they say it takes a village. It does. When you're talking about the oldest historically black institution in the country. This is more than a university. This is a legacy issue, not only for Pennsylvania, but the whole country is looking at what we do here. All hands on deck had to be part of this process for getting us from point A to point B, and I'm very pleased at the partnership of everyone that's been involved with us. Anything else you want to add? Here's the thing. It's a great day, you know, but we're not going to rest on our laurels. We'll celebrate today, and tomorrow we're getting back to work because we've got a lot of work yet to, to do We've begun a a great journey. Transformation is occurring, but we can't stop now. We have to redouble our efforts. And so you guys don't have to deal with middle states for another couple of years, right? Well, well, you know what? They they always are there as a as a support system because what their their role is to make sure that what you say you're doing, you're going to do that you do. So uh, they will come back for just a a visit in in twenty and make sure that the things that we committed to in the uh, in the report are actually happening. Now, that won't have any impact on accreditation, but it has an impact on our credibility. So people will be watching, and you have at least another year or two in your contract, so you're going to be around for a while. I'm going to be here till we get this submitted so that whenever I leave, it won't go backwards. So thank you to you, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you. We're looking forward to your, to your visit to campus. Wonderful. Next up, her three-year-old was killed by a stray bullet while sitting on a porch in South Philadelphia. That was like the worst day of my life. How this mom is turning her tragedy into a triumph for others this holiday. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one Philadelphia woman is turning her tragedy into triumph after losing her three-year-old daughter, Tanira Borum, to gun violence. The mother is on a mission not only to keep her daughter's legacy alive, but to also help others. Here to tell us her story and to talk about the Tanira Borum Foundation is Tamika Borum. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Yeah, I know this can't be easy, and so I'm very sorry for the loss of your daughter. Um, Tell us why you started this foundation. Just to, like, for other children that are less fortunate and not able to get Christmas toys around the holidays and just to keep my daughter's name alive. So take us back, because, I mean, this happened several years ago, and um, a lot of mothers in the city, unfortunately, um, can uh, identify with what happened to you. Yeah, well, in 2014, my daughter was shot 
in the chest while getting out here braided on the porch. And that was like the worst day of my life. I didn't know what to do after that. And when that happened, it just, it just shut, my world just shut down. I didn't, I didn't know what to do, know who to talk to. And it was just a lot going on at that time. Mm-hmm. And so how were you able to, I mean, your three-year-old daughter, I think a lot of people heard of this story and it, it was a, they were outraged by it. Yeah. Um, but it unfortunately continues to happen. How are you able to pick yourself up and say, you know what? I'm going to do something to keep her legacy alive and to help other people. We see this every day. More children getting hurt out here and killed. Uh, it's terrible because every time I hear about a child that's got hurt, I, it brings me back to my daughter, what happened to her. It's like a flashback. It's a reminder. And it's it's tough to deal with on a daily basis, but I have to get up and keep moving and do what I have to do also. Yeah. And so you, then you founded the, you started the foundation. Me and Tyreek been doing this for a good little while now. We go out and talk to people in the community and do good things, try to be good for the community and help others. So it started with you doing a memorial service, and then yeah. it grew from there. Tell me how, how it, the trajectory and the growth of it. Well, when it first started, we had a lot of people, like a lot of people still come out every year. It's on August the 1st. And we have it on the 1500 block of Marston Street. We enjoy, we celebrate Tanira's life. And it's, it turns out very nice every year. And so why did you decide to expand it from there? There's other parents that's out here that don't have their children anymore. Like, they don't have the voice to speak about it or say anything. They just, some of them just shut down, you know. And I just want to be the person to have that voice and to be there for the next person. Yeah, how were you able to pull yourself out of it and to want to even be the voice? Because people can go into despair, and sometimes they never come back. I mean, I've been here, but, you know, I just have to, I pray on it, and I just have to keep moving and doing what I need to do to help the next person. Yeah. Because I wouldn't want nobody to go through what I went through. Yeah. You know. So tell us about Tanira. Tanira. It was my baby. I called her my little pie face. She was a beautiful, loving little girl. She loved everyone. Everyone she came in contact with, she'll give them a big hug, tell them she loved them. She was just full of joy, mm-hmm. and I miss her so much. Just a beautiful little young lady. So what does doing, having the foundation and doing the memorial and doing those other things to help people, what does that do for you? I mean, it makes me feel good to be able to help the next person that's going through that. You know, it's just, it's a lot of people that's going through this. And they don't have, they really don't have the voice to speak about it. Like, they just shut down. And I just want to be there for the next person because I've been there. And it's very tough to deal with on a daily basis. But you have to stay strong and you have to stick in there and just do what's right. Yeah, one foot in front of the other every single day. And so now there's a toy drive. The first annual toy drive for Tanira. It starts on December the 1st to December the 21st. And we just want to give back to the community for children that's 
unfortunate, less fortunate that's not able to have toys for Christmas and just get them a Christmas and put a smile on their face. Yeah. When you see other little three-year-olds running around, what does that do to you? It makes me smile at times. Sometimes it's kind of sad because when I go back and I see them, it just every, they just remind me of my baby. And so where can people um, get in contact with you, bring the toys, uh, or do what they need to do? Well, the toys can be brought to Young Chances Foundation Community Center right off of 27th and Tasker. Will they be distributed around Christmas? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you looking forward to that? Yes. I would like to see all those pretty smiles on the little people's faces. That's beautiful. And so what, what else would you like people to know um, as you move forward? What's your vision for the foundation? Um, just to keep it growing and expanding and, you know, just to be there to help someone else that's in need. So can people get in touch with you in any given way? Tamika at gmail.com. Wonderful. So, Tamika, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and sharing your story. And everybody, please be sure to donate toys. You can uh, Google Young Chances Foundation, find them. uh, They're at 27th and Tasker. And if you or someone you love is a victim of gun violence, visit kywnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint for more resources. Tamika, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As author Frank A. Clark once said, if a person isn't thankful for what she's got, she isn't likely to be thankful for what she's going to get. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.